I'm just waiting for you, man. Anytime you want to start, I'm perfectly ready to start. Always ready to go. 100% of the time. Something we didn't talk about last time was that you snuck into WWDC. Oh, yeah. I guess that happened. Yeah, it did happen. I feel like I have been so busy, I have lost all sense of time. Yeah, we're both back in London now. Mm. You arrived significantly later than me because you went to VidCon as well. Yeah, I am freshly in London, and so still freshly jet-lagged, actually. But I'm back. Back for, uh, I think, three weeks before I turn right back around and go back to America. Uh, But for the moment, I am here. Are you doing this to yourself? I know. It's the summer of lots of travel and not fun hashtag i think <laughs> yeah see i've at least given myself five weeks before i go back oh yeah what are you going back for i don't even remember i'm going to memphis oh right for relay fm's two-year anniversary that should be fun yeah that's gonna be good i'm looking forward to it although memphis in august seems like a really bad idea i'm sure it's fine i think i'm gonna melt look i think unlike london memphis should be built for the fact that it gets to be 100 degrees so you should be fine as long as you stay indoors yeah, I just go there to stay in my hotel for the whole time. It's like, it's too hot to go outside. I'll just stay here. It's a great approach, right, to, to vacations. It's just staying in the hotel. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I see literally no problem with this. So you should have a great time in Memphis. Just pick a good hotel. When you were in WWDC, people know that you were in San Francisco, but you actually went into Moscone where they hold the developer conference. You found a way in. I think you broke through like an open window or something like that is the word on the street. Hmm. What did you actually do there? What did I do? Yeah. Uh, I snuck around. That, that's what I did. <laughs> what is sneaking around in there? Did you go and see some like talks or like sessions yeah so sneaking around means being super sneaky and also tweeting tweeting about about the fact that i was in wwdc you were sneaky for about six minutes i think before you started incessantly tweeting about the fact that you'd broken in (laughs) well what actually occurred was i got in there there were a few things that i did really want to do and then once i felt like okay great i have had minimum viable WWDC experience and if I get caught now I won't mind so much then I started tweeting so I was I was quiet and mute I think for the first few hours and then afterward I was like oh the hell with this and I'm just going to tweet about the fact that I'm here because it's funny to do I mean the answer to your question what did I do there I mean primarily I was really just a tourist at WWDC I am not a developer I have no real reason to be there whatsoever. But I am interested in Apple. I'm interested in development in an abstract kind of way. I'm curious to see a little bit of, of not exactly behind the scenes, but a little bit more of the business side of Apple. Like, what is it that Apple does with this conference? What are the kinds of people who are going there? How do these talks go? I, I was just curious to see all of this stuff in person. And so I went in and actually I attended a few of the sessions. Uh, I was just trying to pick titles that seemed at least vaguely relevant to my interests. You sound surprised by that, Mike. I mean, I know that you have a better base understanding than I do for some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But any session that I've ever seen kind of really bores me because they start doing code on stage and I just can't understand it. No matter how much I try. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a case where I have no experience with Swift, and I have no experience with C, Swift's predecessor language. I mean, the language that I am most familiar with is actually Lisp from years ago, which is a bizarre language. I don't even know what that one is. <laughs> yeah. If you just look at what Lisp looks like, it is like no other programming language because the whole thing is based on parentheses. Uh, it doesn't It doesn't even have... Like, it's, it is just missing many of the features that you would expect a normal computer programming language to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, all those good features, they're all missed. <laughs> yes, that's right, Mike. You know which ones. Mm-hmm, the good ones. Yes, all of the good ones. It has all the bad ones, though. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's simple and beautiful and impractical for very many situations. But nonetheless, it's the one that I have the most experience with. What did you use it for? This is the one that's used for some of the stuff now that's being done in artificial intelligence research. Uh-oh. So Uh-oh. at the time, <laughs> it was used for genetic algorithms and genetic programming. I have no idea if the language is still in use today for those purposes. But, you know, 10 years ago, this was the language that because of some of its strange features, was very, very useful for doing the kind of thing where you are writing a program to program itself as opposed to writing it to explicitly solve a a problem. So Lisp, very, very weird uh, and and probably not a language you would want to use under most circumstances. But the thing that I was familiar with years ago, and while I could not program my way out of a paper bag today, even with Lisp, if I'm sitting in a session at WWDC and they do the throwing code on the screen thing, while I will agree with you, it does the, the the level of boringness personally does go up quite a lot during those moments. I can still at least follow the gist of what is going on. Like I have a sense of what they're talking about or or what this this code is doing, even though I can't follow the details. So uh, that's why sitting in a session, it was an interesting thing to do uh, during this experience. And like I said, I just just tried to pick ones that were were relevant to my interests. So the first one I went to was on ResearchKit. So they were doing a little session about uh, some of the changes with ResearchKit, which is their system that allows uh, scientists and medical researchers to try to collect data from patients and try to give feedback to patients. And that was interesting to see, um, like what what they're up to there. And then I also just sat in on another one, which was about developing games for the Apple Watch. And like the whole notion of that, I thought was really funny, because like there's so little space here. I was just kind of curious to see, you know, like, what do they think is a viable option for a game? And I mean, to date, the only thing I have ever seen, which I thought was kind of an interesting game for Apple Watch, was something called, uh, I think it was called Lifeline. Lifeline. Yeah, yes, there the we go. It's the astronaut and you have to kind of talk to the astronaut. Right, yeah. That, that, is, that I thought was interesting. And it's, it's essentially like a little text adventure is, is mm-hmm. kind of what's occurring. But I thought the, the whole idea of a wrist communicator and you're sending messages back and forth, like it really worked on the Apple Watch. Uh, but I, I was curious to see, like, what are they developing for games in general? Like, if they're having a session here, they clearly think that there is something to the idea of gaming on the Apple Watch. So I went in and I watched that and I thought it was interesting. And I also like to try to look out for the things that Apple isn't saying. So I couldn't help but notice during the entire time I was sitting in that Apple Watch session that they were never, ever mentioning force pressing on the Apple Watch. 
and then I cast my mind back to the WWDC announcement. I thought, huh, I don't think they mentioned anything about force pressing there either. And so just little things like that, I just get curious and I think, I wonder what's up with that. There are many situations here where it would seem to make sense that you'd want to have force pressing on the screen, especially for games, but it seems notably absent. Uh, So yeah, I just like being in those sessions and trying to read between the lines of what Apple's up to, which is, you know, always, always fun doing the kind of Kremlinology of Apple discussions and events. So yeah, that, that was, uh, that's primarily what I was doing in the morning. I'm pleased that you did it. Um, there was a conversation where I admitted that I was way too chicken to do this, <laughs> <laughs> to sneak in. I'm, I'd be too scared that I'd get caught. See, the trick with so many of these things is to just try to act very confidently when you walk through the door. Right, but this is why I know that I couldn't, because I would be too scared of getting caught, right? I couldn't (laughs) act that way. Just got to walk through the door with your forged and or stolen ticket and or gifted ticket, who knows? And just, you know, the trick is like you look past the guy at the door like you're already in. Right, like you're not concerned what what he's thinking about when you're walking in the door. If you look nervously at the security guard and, and tremblingly hand over your ticket, as I'm sure you would have done, then they're going to know. They're going to know something's up. But you act like you're already in the event as you're walking in the event, and you're just being minorly inconvenienced by having to hand over the ticket. That's what you do. So that's what I did, and it worked. It worked just fine. Good. And the fact that I had a valid ticket probably helped. Yeah, it was valid, right? Like the biggest air quotes. The ticket existed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. The ticket existed. Uh, might not have been valid for me. I think they're non-transferable. So what about the people? Like, did you speak to anyone? Were you staying completely incognito because of not only the fact that you like to be incognito, you were also there sneaking? Yeah, so the people is an interesting thing. Once people knew that I was at WWDC, I did start getting recognized by a few people who were there, and that was fine. And also, I was able to actually end up speaking to a few people who make apps that I use, which was uh, an interesting experience to be able to do that. I feel so sorry for those people. <laughs> I, I, why, why do you say that, Mike? Why do you say that? Because I imagine, like, oh, hey, I really love your app. Here is 65 features I would like you to implement. <laughs> that only I need. <laughs> See, I, I try to take the entire opposite tack in those moments. You might think that I, w- I would harass the developers, but mostly I, I feel like people do things for their own reasons. If someone asks then maybe I'm ready to offer a bunch of things that I would like. But even then, I know full well which features are just for me. And so I will preface that in the conversation of, this is a feature that you should not implement because it is just for me. But I'm still going to mention it if you ask, <laughs> right? I'll, I'll do that kind of thing. But no, I, I, uh, I, I don't feel the need to harass any of the developers I am fortunate enough to speak to. And really, I just like being able to talk to people and get some sense of why have they structured the app this way or like what interesting directions are they maybe going to take it in the future like i think that's a it's just an interesting thing to be able to do and something like being on the inside of, of wwdc has an unusually high density of people who work on a thing which i directly use so after the sessions were over i was kind of 
uh, running around and, and meeting a few different people for a few different things. And that's partly, it's partly why I was saying on Twitter that I was, I was at WWDC because I was able to kind of catch a few people that way. And in particular, I was actually lucky enough that a guy named Harlan was able to give me a demo of the thing that I was most interested in from the WWDC announcement, which was Playgrounds for Swift for the iPad. So I felt very fortunate that at one point I was able to wander down to like this this big ground area WWDC where you could work with Apple employees and he was able to show me the thing that had been demoed earlier in the week of of Apple's attempt to put a program on their iPads which can be used to learn how to code in Swift. So that was very exciting. That was probably the highlight of the day, being able to play around with that thing, which I am super interested in. Mm. It looks very, very powerful. Uh, It is very impressive to see it in person and to discuss some of the ways this might be implemented in the future or where it might be going. And yeah, I was, I was very, very impressed with it. And I felt quite lucky to be able to do that. If you installed um, iOS 10 on any of your iPads? No, I haven't installed anything yet. I will probably wait for one of the public betas, and then I will install it on one of my least used iPads, yeah. primarily so that I can play around with the, the Swift Playground thing. I have it on one of my older iPads. Well, mm-hmm. I only have one old iPad, the iPad Air 2. And I have it on there, and I've been enjoying the stickers and all of the uh, emoji stuff mm-hmm. and texting with Federico. Mm-hmm. So that's been really good. Of course, of course, you're going straight for the stickers. It's the most exciting thing. I don't, I don't agree. I think Swift Playgrounds is the most exciting thing. I think you are wrong. I keep meaning to play with it, but I haven't yet. It's installed. I just haven't done anything with it because I'm too busy sending heart stickers to everybody. Yeah, of course. Of course, Mike. I don't know, man. I, I was thinking maybe we could do a spin-off podcast where you and I could learn Swift together okay. called Cortech. <laughs> I think that's uh-huh. that was going to happen. But it seems like since you're just distracted by the stickers, I'll probably need to find a, another co-host, another developer co-host for Cortech. I can do it only if we spell it with a K. Uh, um, <laughs> maybe. Maybe that could work. C-O-R-T-E-K. Cortec? Cortec. <laughs> Perfect. I think this will cause no confusion at all on the relay page. Not at all. I, I don't know why you'd have an issue. The brain would just be made out of metal and we're good to go. Yeah, yeah. See, you can envision it already. The logo would be green instead, like computer green. Perfect. Cortec. Cortec. Episode one. <laughs> UI views. <laughs> what are they? I don't know. <laughs> That's every episode. Just go, what is it? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. All I know is that I am making a little guy move around on a playground. This is my level of coding skill. Today's episode of Cortex is brought to you by one of my favorite companies in the world, and that is FreshBooks, because they are on a mission to help small business owners like me, and maybe like you, save time and avoid the stress that comes with running their businesses. And all of this starts with pain-free invoicing. Imagine being able to create an invoice in just 30 seconds and get it sent out that's got your company logo on, that gives your clients tons of ways to pay you, like by card, by PayPal, 
Imagine that world. Well, that world exists with FreshBooks. FreshBooks allows you to do all of that in just a snap. And what's more, FreshBooks customers get paid five days faster on average because their invoices look so darn good and there are so many great ways for your clients to pay you. FreshBooks allows you to very easily keep track of all of your expenses so you can keep everything nice and organized, ready for tax time. They have great reports so you can see what's outstanding and who owes you what. Fantastic support. They have tons of third-party integrations and so much more. Trust me. Look, if you send invoices to anyone... Just give FreshBooks a go. You get 30 days of free, unrestricted use by going to freshbooks.com slash cortex. It's going to totally change the way that you deal with your business's finances. Don't forget to enter cortex in the how you heard about us section so FreshBooks knows that you came to them from this show. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for their support of Cortex and Relay FM. So straight after WWDC, instead of going home, mm, which I would have wanted to do, which you maybe should have done. Uh, you, you headed to L.A. instead. Yes. To seek the bright lights of Hollywood. Mm. Um, and to attend VidCon. Yeah. What is VidCon? Can you explain VidCon like in a, in a one-liner? Like, what is it? Because it feels like the YouTube conference. No, Mike, it is not the YouTube conference. It is the online video conference. Oh, I forget about all the other online video services that are probably rolled into there and make up a big part of VidCon. Yes, uh, VidCon is not the YouTube conference. They're very clear on that. Despite that YouTube announces new features and their CEO speaks on the main stage several times and that they they bring in all the big YouTube stars, it is the online video conference, uh, and they also have scores of vimeo producers i guess yes somewhere at th- vidcon they had they had five people and they had all of them <laughs> yeah I, I, have, I have no idea oh poor vimeo <laughs> they're in a different business they have a different business model yeah. vimeo but it's still fun to just make fun of them sometimes uh or maybe the amazon service that was announced a few months ago that i haven't heard anything about oh, yeah. yeah oh yeah i forgot <laughs> yeah, about me that too <laughs> i just remembered it the other day and i was like what happened with that? I think I signed up for it, and then I just totally forgot about it. Oh, well. Uh, but yeah, so Amazon uh, strongly represented at VidCon, too. So just to be clear, it is not the YouTube conference. YouTube does not run it. It is the online video conference, and it is run by the Vlogbrothers. I think I think this is the sixth year it's it's been going, and... It has turned very rapidly into just this enormous, enormous industry event that this year had, I think, 26,000 people. It's an absolutely, absolutely enormous thing. Uh, And for comparison's sake, WWDC has 5,000 people. So it's five times larger than WWDC. Nope. (laughs) Don't want it. (laughs) No? Doesn't sound good? Um, Mm -mm. It's it's absolutely enormous. And because of its enormity, it's, it's a little bit hard to try to describe what the experience is like being there. But I guess you can say there's there's three main groups of people who are showing up. There are people who work in the industry of online video, and this can mean all kinds of stuff. This can mean advertisers, this can mean production companies, this can mean 
agents. Like this is all the industry stuff. There are creators, so people like myself, people who produce online video, and then there are an enormous number of fans who are showing up to scream when their favorite YouTube person comes on stage. Uh, like it's just it's just an enormous enormous gathering that is is difficult to put into words, and that I had avoided for very many years, but because of RelayCon stroke WWDC week being the week directly before VidCon, I, d- I decided to basically have a two-week period of, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm going to meet a lot of people. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to set aside these two weeks. I might as well. They're both in California. If I'm if I'm flying out there for one, I might as well fly out there for the other. And then it becomes kind of a, a, an interesting way to spend a bunch of time during the summer. So that's what I did. I spent two weeks at each event meeting an enormous number of people and then being tremendously exhausted afterward. Do you consider this networking? Would you say that that's what you're doing here? That's an interesting question. I want to say no, because the word networking, it's like a sleazy word, isn't it? Doesn't it feel that way? It's become a dirty word. Yeah. But I I actually think that the, the core of what it is, is a good thing. And when I'm saying networking here, I'm not talking about like going to the bar and doing like a corporate speed dating thing. Something I have seen and avoided. So you can get to know the people in your adjacent teams. <laughs> oh, I'm busy this evening. Yeah. Many years ago, I did one of those kind of businessy speed dating things. Oh, you did? Oof. I was like, I don't like this. That was, that was, that was a different me in a different industry many, many years ago. But even then I was like, nope, do not want in no small part, just because of how many hands you're shaking in a short period of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I mean it more in the sense of meeting new people who are in your industry that you're getting to know to maybe strike up some kind of working relationship or, you know, maybe even for like for friendship or for business or just so you have more contacts that if something ever pops up one day, you can be like, I know someone for this. It's interesting because I have also been thinking a bunch about why did I do this? <laughs> uh, because th- this thing, I-, I think almost everybody I have ever mentioned it to that I was going to go to WWDC and VidCon one the week after the other uh, was quite surprised that I would do such a thing. And I myself was a little bit surprised that this even crossed my radar as, as a thing to do. But part of it was I've um, like I've just been thinking about how I did this and I'm doing this year of less as, as part of my theme for the year. And it's been crossing my mind about like, what do I do after the year of less? And one of the things I was toying around with was the idea of like a year of new, of like maybe doing new things. And this certainly fell into the category of something that was new to do. And in addition to just being a new thing to do, it was also just a ton of new people to meet and a, and a bunch of new people to interact with. And my, my feeling is not so much that 
I'm going there and I'm sort of networking with the idea that these people are business contacts. I think my my primary my primary feeling from this was just one of there are very few people in the world who do the kind of work that I do, especially when you start talking about the online video side of it and doubly so when you start talking about the online video side of it where my face is not visible on camera. Like that starts getting into being the very, very small numbers uh, of people who do that. And so part of going on this trip was being able to meet some new people in that field in particular, which was a thing that I was able to do. And I, I was very glad to be able to do it. But even more broadly, I find that people who make their living in a public way, and so this can include people like developers, right? They are making a thing and they are putting it out in public. Or this can include lots of people in the periphery of the whole YouTube world. Of like They make a thing and they put it out in public. Even just knowing more people like that is... It's just nice to have contacts with people who do similar things, because even if you work in in different areas, there are a lot of comparisons and similar experiences. So I can have conversations with developers where I, you know, I don't know how to write code, but we can have a conversation that is sort of about like the creative process, because there are similarities between writing code and writing a script. Like they require a similar kind of work. And then there's also similar kind of responses to putting your work out in public. So I, I just found it valuable to interact with people who, I mean, aside from you, Mike, I know nobody in London in my social circle who does work like this. And so it can always just be kind of weird that when you do work in public on the internet, you feel like sort of connected to a bunch of people, but they're all always going to be geographically distant because the frequency of anyone doing this work is so rare. Uh, so I get, I guess like in that sense, it's networking because my feeling was a bit like I am going to meet up with colleagues they might not do the exact same thing that I do, but there is a colleague-like relationship with a whole bunch of people. And also I can go meet with people who are uh, new colleagues to me, right? People I have never interacted before, but we have this kind of commonality of doing work in public. So I don't know. That is, that is my very long, probably overly detailed response to was I networking like, I guess, yes, but it depends slightly on, on what you mean by networking. But there was certainly no speed dating business networking, no. Based on the type of networking that I think of and do, you were networking. Mm -hmm. um, like, this is how I think of it. Meet, just meeting people in your industry. Like, I, I recommend to people always, like, if you do something like software development or you're a designer mm -hmm. or something like that, there are probably meetups in your area. Like, you don't have to go to California. Um, you know, there, there, there are likely meetups that you can go to that will have like-minded people doing this kind of thing so you can make these contacts yourself. I think that even though you're kind of 
maybe approaching this from the sense of I just want to know people, you know, mm-hmm. for kind of uh, camaraderie and, you know, a sense of not kind of feeling alone in this, which you can at times, especially when you work at home and in solitary ways like we both do. It's nice to know that there are people out there that you can talk to that you are aware are doing the same kind of thing that you are. Mm -hmm. But there really is a business side of it that you potentially don't see right now. Look at me and you, right? Um, You reached out to me uh, when I started Relay FM and and it was a similar kind of thing and we went for lunch. And then we ended up working together like many months down the line. And this is the same for me for me going to WWDC. WWDC is one of the most important things on my calendar. It is one of the most vital things that I do as part of my business in the year. And it has been the most vital thing that I have done in business over the last four years as I've attended there. Because I get to meet people and put faces to names and kind of get in front of people that I think are doing interesting work or that I enjoy their work. And then they get to learn a little bit about me. They get to see how I interact. And it's kind of led to what Relay FM is now. You know, all of the people that we work with are people that I've met and that Stephen's met at these types of events. And mm-hmm. over time, we've struck up friendships and working relationships, which have eventually built to the thing that I'm doing now. I think it's really important to have these kind of in-person meetings and conversations with people because it helps strengthen bonds. Even if you know somebody online and you talk to them every single day over multiple messaging services, it can be really important to just see how they talk and look at their body language and see their face when they talk to you in these in-person scenarios because it really kind of just helps fill out the picture of that person. Because then when you're apart again and you're talking as you were before, you then have a different kind of feeling and sense for that individual and that can be so important for building the relationships that you want to build, whether they're for friendship Mm -hmm. or for business. Yeah, I I definitely agree that no matter how much online contact you have with people, it is fundamentally different to talk to people in person and that a relationship is always different after some amount of in-person time, no matter how small has been spent. And there's just no way around that. It's, I think this is just a side effect of, you know, humans being the monkeys that we are, that there, there's something, there's something different that happens in your brain after you meet someone in real life. I, I think your monkey brain does a better job of modeling the other person in your mind when you are then talking to them online later, or it, it makes the person more real in this, in this way, which is undefinable. Like there were a number of people that I met this summer who I had had a bunch of of text interchanges with over the internet, but it's still fundamentally different than when you actually see them in person and spend some time together in person. It's just like there's some part of your brain that kind of needs this or that that treats things differently when the when the person is more embodied for you. And I do think that this is, um, it's like the next level of, I, I wrote this article a while back called uh, Faceless Voices, talking about radio voices or narration voices and how something in your brain changes if you ever see a picture of that person. Like if you just hear someone's voice and then you see what they look like, 
your brain treats it differently. And I really do. I really do think that that's something going on in the mind that if you hear a voice unconnected from a face, your brain experiences it in a different way than once you know what the face looks like. And I think there's another level past that, which is you've heard the person, you know what their face looks like, but now they are sitting in front of you. And you, the two of you are exchanging you know, nonverbal communication in the form of body language or the way you're looking. I, I really do think that that matters a lot for human interaction. The internet can't replace that yet. Maybe when VR gets good enough, but huh. not at the moment. I will just reiterate what, what you were saying earlier, though, that even if it is not my intention to make business connections, that doing this kind of stuff in the past has has definitely resulted in business opportunities. Like the very first conference of this that I ever went to was this conference organized by Henry of Minute Physics uh, called Brainstem at the Perimeter Institute in Canada. And for various reasons, I, I was trying to leave my teaching job at the exact same time that that conference was happening. It was just like this horrible, horrible disaster of like a difficult time to to get to Canada for that conference. It was a, it was an incredible nightmare. But I was determined. I was determined to get there, and I I still really think that that might be one of the most defining conferences I ever go to because it was the first time that I met a bunch of people who are now professional colleagues and friends. And like, I'm absolutely sure that if I had never gone to that brainstem conference, I would never have started the hello internet podcast with Brady because that was the first time that I met him. And because I met him then when I met him again at later conferences that YouTube put on, now we weren't meeting for the first time. We were already meeting as friends, right? And starting a little bit earlier makes a difference. And I also think that like the random acts of intelligence show that happened uh, a couple years ago now, that would have never been put on if the five of us hadn't met at Brainstem. Uh, so like, and those are definitely cases of getting to know people and then thinking, hey, maybe we could work together on a podcast or, hey, the, you know, the five of us really get along together. Maybe we could do some kind of fun one off show like you, you never know where it's going to go. And like you said, you know, our own podcast was just a side effect of me reaching out to you mainly because it's like, oh, look, it's another creator who lives in London. Like, let me send him a message because I don't know anybody else who lives in the city. <laughs> you know, and then like, oh, surprise, surprise. Like we we do similar work. And so we get along. And then and then eventually, you know, you pitch me on a podcast and 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 here we are. So whilst it may have been exhausting and crazy and huge and unwieldy hmm. you probably have made some connections at vidcon which will prove fruitful in the long term you never know uh, you know just just <sighs> with all these things it's impossible to know what the future holds and right now all i can say is i, I was able to meet a bunch of new people who i'd never met before that was kind of the purpose of doing this and i'm very glad that i went <laughs> even though i'm still in like week two of recovery <laughs> let me take a moment to thank squarespace the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page website or online store for continuing to support 
Cortex. You can start building your own website today at squarespace.com and use the offer code Cortex at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you because if it's worth the effort, it's worth sharing with the world. There have been so many times in my life where I've needed a website for something. I have a new idea, a new project that I want to start. Squarespace is the first place that I go because you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about hosting. You don't have to worry about scaling. You don't have to be someone like me who would then have to worry about learning how to develop and code a website. I have no idea how to do any of this stuff. I don't know how to scale a site. I don't know how to do CSS. I don't know any of this. Squarespace take care of it. They have professionally designed templates that you can build and adapt with their drag and drop tools. They have state-of-the-art technology to ensure security and stability, and this is why they're trusted by millions of people around the world. And those millions of people, they all have access to 24-7 support with live chat and email. The ability to sell things for Squarespace's commerce platform, which allows anyone to add a store to their site. You can be one of these people. Just go to squarespace.com and you can sign up for a free trial with no credit card required and start booting your own website today. Their plans start at just $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year and then when you do decide to sign up make sure that you use the offer code cortex at checkout this will get you 10 percent off your first purchase and show your support for this show thank you to squarespace for continuing to support cortex and relay fm would you like to talk about our old friend evernote <laughs> now i don't know if and when evernote has ever come up on the show but mm. i know that we have both been evernote users for a long time Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to hazard a guess to say that, seriously, I think I may have had an Ever- Evernote account for about 10 years. Yeah. And I know that sounds like, it sounds like an incredibly long time, but I think I really have. It's getting, if not then, it's about eight. You know, it's, it's getting close to 10 years, if not already 10 years, because I got in pretty much immediately from when they launched. Mm-hmm. The reason that you're bringing this up right now is because in the document... For quite a while, I have had a little bullet point, which was simply called "fuck Evernote." Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> as as an item to talk about. So many people that I know that use Evernote have, in some way, that feeling. <laughs> yeah, and that probably comes with the fact that it's a ten-year-old product. Yeah, I think there's there's many there's many complicated things that are are wrapped up here, but. I, I have just heard incidentally that Evernote has done some pricing changes. And so I feel like if we were ever going to get to this bullet point, maybe this week is the week. So the first thing is, I, I would actually like it if you could summarize for me in a clear and concise way what changes have just occurred at Evernote, because I cannot figure out for the life of me what's happening. Oh, I think you've asked the wrong person. Uh, I can't work it out either. <laughs> Basically, they've increased their pricing plans, so they're more expensive mm-hmm. than they were before. Mm-hmm. And the free plan, I think, only works with two devices now. And if you go, want to use more than two devices, you have to go to now one of the two paid plans, plus and premium. Mm-hmm. And I think oh, it's conf- it's very confusing. Uh, and I know as a current Evernote premium customer, uh, mm. they have not contacted me to tell me what's happening to my account if I'm going to be paying more. It seems like I probably will be paying more. Uh, and then they just have two kind of accounts that have some different features uh, and different storage space. 
So, so clear, so simple, Mike. Yeah, uh, I try. I, honestly, that's as clear and simple as I can make it. Basically, Evernote's more expensive, and for free accounts, they're restricting the amount of devices you can use. That's like in a nutshell. But there is a lot of nuance to it, which is making the whole thing a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit confusing, even just just reading through the the description of of what they've changed on the website. It's like, oh, okay, you've raised the prices, but with only one of the plans, can you search? inside of documents like isn't this the whole thing of which your service is like okay but i now i need to have the most expensive one to do that uh it just seems like i've seen a lot of people who are super angry at evernote about this yeah i think the ocr is only on premium now but like the expensive one and if you want to download notes you have to have one of the paid ones it's all it's basically they had a feature set that was available to everyone and then they split it, and then they split it again, and then they put the mm-hmm. prices up. <laughs> right. So... 10-year-old product. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it feels 10 years old. Now, this pricing thing is interesting because I, I think many people have had a, a feeling from the outside of, what's going on, Evernote? The company has gone through some weird announcements over the past year, if I remember correctly. Like the, the CEO changed, and then they laid off a bunch of people. I feel like I've been just been hearing odd news about Evernote for a year. Yeah, yeah. Which makes you feel not super secure about a product that is supposed to be keeping your off-board brain uh, <laughs> safe and synchronized and and searchable everywhere you know it, it doesn't it doesn't make you feel good and it's also a company that seems to have been very very slow at making any kind of significant changes that that people want actually when we were in uh, San Francisco we ended up driving past the headquarters of Evernote at one point <laughs> we were looking at the building and asking them if they needed work chat yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe I believe someone might have suggested to write, "Do you know about work chat on a brick and throw, throw it through, through the their window?" window. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of the feeling about how intrusive Evernote is about letting you know that they have work chat. It's like, how many times do I have to close this notification? Why don't you just throw a brick through my window at this point? Uh, but when we drove past it, as with other companies, but particularly with Evernote. I looked at this huge building and again had the feeling of what do all of the people in there do? Like I I just I have no ability to understand how a building full of people equals the product that is Evernote. And I will now tell you the reason why I originally had that bullet point listed as it is in the show notes. Because okay, here is the selling point of Evernote. Save everything in this digital brain, right? This this little app can just serve as your memory. This is what all of their branding and marketing is about. The elephant never forgets. Right. Their icon is an elephant. Elephants never forget. Right. This This is fantastic. Okay, great. So I've been using Evernote for a very, very long time, as you have. And you saw a little while ago for one of our book club episodes that I have a system that I use with Evernote to make a record of all of the books that I read. 
So here's this little workflow that I've had for quite a while. I read a book. Now I'm reading it on iBooks, formerly on Kindle, but it's the same idea. And so I make a bunch of highlights as I go through the book. And sometimes I type little notes to myself. It's, you know, active reading and just pulling out the parts that I think are important or that are interesting. At the end of reading any particular book, I take screenshots of all of the pages with highlights or notes on them. And then I would make in Evernote a folder with the name of the book, and I would dump all of those pages in there. Sometimes I would go through again and make like further annotations to future me. And this is an extremely useful thing to do because... Like when we do the book shows, for example, I'm able to just pull up, oh, here's all the pages from the book. So I'm looking at only the relevant sections and the notes to myself. And also super valuable is because Evernote does all this optical character recognition, I can search through all of that stuff. And what's really useful is that you can't possibly remember everything from every book that you've ever read. But if I'm doing a video on some topic... I can search for a couple of keywords related to that video topic. And sometimes I would find a page of text from a book I read a while ago that had something interesting that was related to the topic that I'm working on now. So it's, it's this, it has been this way for me for years to keep books that I have read in active memory. And this is along with all of the other various notes and things that I'm just collecting regularly for videos and stuff. So this is the process that I've been doing for quite a while. And I'm really, I'm really deep into Evernote with this, as you can quite imagine. Now, about two months ago, which is when I first put this bullet point in the document, I went to go follow my little process as normal. And I had finished a book. I had taken all the screenshots. And I thought, okay, great, here we go. Time to make a new notebook and time to save these pages into it. And I pressed the, pressed the new notebook button. Huh. That's funny. Nothing happens. Nothing happens when I press the new notebook button. So I tried on a different device, press the new notebook button. Hmm, nothing happens. Huh, how interesting. I open up Alternote, which is that lovely uh, additional interface to Evernote, and the new notebook button is grayed out. I can't even click it. Well, gee, that's strange. And then it dawns on me. I do a Google search for Evernote Notebook Limit. And sure enough, sure enough, they only allow you to have 250 notebooks. Why? That is what I want to know. (laughs) Why? Why, Evernote? (laughs) Isn't this your whole f***ing business is to remember all the things? Why? Why on earth would you ever limit the number of notebooks that a person can have? Why would you do this? You have a whole building filled with people. You have servers. You have monthly revenue. Why on earth would you ever limit this? This is what your business does. This is your selling point. But no, somewhere in some array, some dude was like, eh, 250, that's enough. Hard-coded limit, right? And it's not even like 256 or something. So like, oh, maybe I'm running into a bug that nobody just considered, right? They ran out of space in their integer. No, someone just decided there's 250. And even better, okay, even better, Mike. I'm Googling around this like, I cannot believe this. But then I find, oh, there is a solution. Don't worry. Don't worry. You can archive some of your notebooks to get back space. 
So it's like, oh, you can take a whole section. You can archive a bunch of notebooks. Oh, that sounds great. What happens when I archive a notebook? Oh, don't worry. It's still there. It just won't show up in search and it won't sync on anything. Great, thanks. Well, how do you get it? You can manually go to like an archive section to manually go look through everything. But I will remind you, the whole purpose of the way you store things in Evernote is to be able to search for things, not to be able to categorize everything in an absolutely perfect way. And it's just like, you know, I've been feeling, I've been feeling vaguely irritated with a whole bunch of minor things in Evernote for a very long time, not least of which is how awful their app is to use on iPad. But I've been living with it forever because I was like, okay, well, there's there's just this debt that I have. But like Evernote is one of the only remaining programs where I will prefer to use it on the computer simply because using it on the iPad is so awful. But again, it's like you have a building full of people. Like, why haven't you been able to update your iPad app to be usable on, I don't know, an iPad for anyone who's ever used this for 10 seconds? Like, has anybody ever used this program on an iPad at Evernote? What are you doing with those hundreds of people or whatever? Oh, it's it's so infuriating. But so I've been living with all of this stuff for a while, just kind of like, right, whatever, Evernote. But you got me because I have literally over 3,000 individual notes in Evernote. And there really is nobody else that does what they do in the way that, that Evernote do it. Yeah, I've been living with it for ages. Like, you have a hard-coded limit that I have just run up against, and there is nothing that I can do. Thanks a lot. It it feels like it's just a gigantic middle finger for being a user over a long period of time. Like, that, that's that's just what it feels like. Eh. Guess what? When you're... When you're technical debt is is too high like when you're just when you're into this far far too much and there's no turning back uh we're going to show you that we have an arbitrary limit for no good reason like great thanks thanks evernote really appreciate that one so frustrating so what are you going to do i don't know what i'm going to do i mean the answer is for the past couple months i've been just kind of like not saving notes because i don't i don't have a good solution right but this is not a good solution either uh, I have, I have tried to look into some of the alternatives and the only one which even comes remotely close to being able to replace Evernote is Microsoft's OneNote, right? This is the only program out there that is sort of close to being able to do what Evernote does. Right. Yeah. Cause they do OCR as well, don't they? That was my main thing. It's like, do they do OCR? Because the OCR is a totally killer feature. OCR is the optical character recognition. So I can save an image, like for example, a screenshot of a bunch of text from a book, or like I have tons of like infographics and just a huge number of images that I can save. And when I search for stuff, OCR, the optical character recognition, will recognize those as actual words. And I have to say, Evernote's OCR is very impressive. Like it has pulled up stuff in the back of photos that I would never notice where like there's a little thing written on a sign or something. Like it's it's very very good. It's also why okay great, I can rely on this. And so for a while I I don't think Microsoft OneNote had uh image OCR, but they have added it since I checked last. But the problem with OneNote is their whole structure, right? Their whole layout is is not as like th- their hierarchy is basically you can have a notebook and that notebook can have a bunch of tabs in it as opposed to Evernote which allows you to have like an arbitrary 
number of hierarchical notebooks. So you can have a notebook that contains 100 notebooks. And so, for example, like I have a notebook which is just called Book Notes. And within that are a bunch of other notebooks, each for each individual book. But the OneNote metaphor is much more like you, you have a notebook and that notebook has a bunch of tabs on the top, kind of like you're going to have browser windows. And let me tell you, tabs on the top does not scale when you want to have a hundred of them. Like clearly in OneNote's design conception, they were kind of thinking that no notebook will ever have more than a, you know, maybe half a dozen tabs in it. It's just not designed to work like that. So OneNote is just structurally unacceptable. Plus their icon is so Microsofty and purple. It's it's really hideous. Sorry, OneNote team. It's really ugly. <laughs> yeah, they they have an interesting design language. Do, do you think some of the structural stuff is just because you're too baked in in your mind to the way Evernote works? I have been trying to think about how to make this work, and I am I am not in any way devoted to the way Evernote lays stuff out. It, it's simply a question of. How can I have a way that sorts things like I want to corral all of my book notes into a separate section, but also be able to access any of them at any point in time. And I want to be able to group all of my projects in process together, like in one little place. And I want to group together all of my future projects together all in one place. When you have a large number of notebooks and I don't see any way around that, you need some structure that is on top of like the notebook level. You need to be able to group them together in a reasonable way. But the thing is, like, I just, I think what is going to have to happen is that I'm just going to have to move over to OneNote and just deal with it as best I can. Because my current situation of resenting Evernote but still being a premium user right, is the worst of everything. <laughs> it's like shaking my fist at Evernote, not using it, but I'm still paying for their service. And like now they've done a price increase, so potentially paying more. It's like, well, this is dumb. Like one of these things has to give. And so my actual plan is Microsoft does have a little program that will let you import an Evernote database, but of course it only runs on a Windows computer. They didn't make one for Mac. Thanks, guys. Huh. Uh, so I, I was thinking, well, I guess I don't know how I'm going to use this. And then I remembered, oh, my father has a Windows computer. So I think when I visit my family for part two this summer, I'm just going to go onto my dad's computer, <laughs> install my Evernote, let it download all 3,000 notes, install OneNote, and then on my dad's Windows laptop run this program which should be able to import everything from Evernote into OneNote. Like I think that's I think that's just what's going to have to happen because I can't I can't think of any other tool or or solution for this. So this doesn't necessarily help with this problem, but it is just worth noting uh Apple's Notes app on the Mac will import an Evernote database. Oh, will it? Interesting. Yeah. I'm too scared to do this. <laughs> Because I have literally no idea what will happen, but it yeah. does do it. It's also interesting because Notes has a flat hierarchy of folders. It doesn't like folders and folders. So I'm just like, what are you going to do with the notebooks and notebooks? 
uh, importer. It's interesting. Interesting thing to find out. Exactly. <laughs> I don't want any part of it, but it will do it. I'm feeling like I want to move away from Evernote now as well. This has just been mm. like a wake up for me where it's like I use it for just one thing and I don't even really need to do that anymore. Basically, I use Evernote now for travel stuff. So when I get mm-hmm. emails of confirmation things, I send them to Evernote. And I know that there are a bunch of uh, apps that are specifically built for this purpose, stuff like TripIt mm-hmm. and things like that. But Evernote has just been always what I use because it's so simple and I know I can have everything downloaded and it's there and I've used it forever. Mm-hmm. But for my next upcoming trip to Memphis, I'm trying out something different um, and hoping that it will be the a better solution for me. I'm basically just using Apple Notes. So I have been previously, uh, more recently, writing out just a simple text note with some information in it, like basic flight information and confirmation numbers, hotel addresses mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that's just there when I need it. But what I've realized I can do uh, from Stephen on Connected recommending this to me, I completely forgot you could do this, is save PDFs into Apple Notes. So now when I get confirmation emails of trips and hotel bookings and stuff like that, I use Mm -hmm. my email application Airmail, which can take an email and turn it into a PDF. And then Mm -hmm. I just open it up in Apple Notes and append it to the travel note that I started. So now I have a note which has all of the basic text information and then a bunch of PDFs down at the bottom. And I think this is probably going to be the solution for me going forward. I'm going to try it out on one trip. If it works as flawlessly as I pretty much expect it will, um, I'm I think I might just uh, download my Evernote information and then kind of cancel my premium plan. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like that's probably the reasonable thing for you to do. For what I'm using it for, I think it makes the most sense because it's literally all I do with Evernote now is just email and travel stuff. And there are a bunch of specifically purposed tools that do this better, I've been told. But also, I just want to use Notes because Notes has kind of become my brain now. Mm-hmm. That is now my off-board brain, not uh, not Evernote anymore. Yeah, and I, I wonder how many people are in a similar situation to you where the price raise in Evernote reminds them that they basically don't use Evernote anymore yep. and it is time to cancel. I think I'm paying something like five or six pounds a month for Evernote and it's not a lot of money, but I guess it is if I'm not using it. Yeah, it does, it, you might as well cancel it if you're essentially using it to just keep track of a single thing. Yeah, like at this point, the only reason I'm paying for it is because they're limiting the free account to two devices because I don't use right. any of the other features. Right. So I just, when a company does something like raise the prices, I, I think the presumption is they need more money. I think that's probably why they're raising the prices. Mm-hmm. And and that to me just, it's it seems to be adding to the Evernote tale of woe with shrinking the company and then also still needing more money and, you know, with with a somewhat confusing upgrade structure, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Evernote finds itself with fewer paying customers and fewer revenue after this price change. Like, I just keep wondering what's going to happen on iOS because it's it's the same thing. Like I haven't heard anything about these this price change, but sooner or later something's going to have to happen. And I and I'd be willing to bet that with all of the improvements that Apple has made to Notes, which you know 
everybody seems to love. And even though I, I use notes in a very minimal way, I can tell that it, it's way better. Like I, I have a hard time imagining who is the Evernote user that couldn't get away with using notes. I think that's very, very few people. And when facing the option of, do you want to pay more for Evernote in this complicated structure or do you just want to use notes for free i think at this point this year notes is is good enough for almost everybody who probably uses evernote and and so that that to me adds to this feeling of this is an elephant standing on a sinking ship from which all of the rats are fleeing that's evernote or at least that's what it feels like. Sorry if you listen to this and you work at Evernote, but that's that's the impression from the outside. Like one of the great things about Evernote is the fact that it's everywhere. Like that is yeah. one of its great things. It is on all devices, it is on all platforms, so you know you're gonna get it wherever you are. That is like one of its best features. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, if I open my Android phone, Evernote is there and all my notes are there. Right? There are very few applications that are in as many places as Evernote. But in the same vein, I think that's been part of their undoing because they've wasted time and effort on making things like a Pebble app. That doesn't seem like a good use of developer time. No. I mean, and look, fundamentally, one of the things that is really upsetting about this is this two-device limit is not friendly to those who have come around to live the multi-pad lifestyle. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I'm sure that is... That's the real sticking point for the cortex audience there's no way that me and you could use the free account because the multi-pad lifestyle dictates at least two ios devices unacceptable well at least two if you don't ios devices it's going to be three because everybody needs a phone exactly and then you have two ipads exactly yeah so for all the for all the cortexians who are living the righteous multi-ipad lifestyle the evernote free account is totally unacceptable and oh look there's notes just sitting there, getting better every year, mm-hmm. waiting for you to check it out. I think uh, I think that's what's going to happen. So, I mean, my feeling is, boy, I sure would love it if Evernote raised the 250 limit. But the, the feeling is really one of slow development plus weirdness about the company plus increasing prices that I suspect won't actually help. All of this equals it's time to go. Like it's it's time to find another way to do this. Hashtag multipad lifestyle. <laughs> there you go. Great. <laughs> Gotta get that in there. <laughs> Today we are also brought to you by Pingdom, the company that is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a site. You can start monitoring your own websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash Cortex. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter the offer code Cortex at checkout, you'll also get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom offer something simple, which is the ability to know first when something on your website isn't working anymore. It is as simple as that. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every single month. That's one of 400,000 outages every day. Regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it is so important to monitor the availability and performance of your site. And these days, websites are becoming so much more sophisticated that they have all of these little dependencies in them, like contact forms, checkouts, e-commerce functionality, logins, search... 
any of these parks go down on your site, and it can be terrible for the people that are visiting your website. How do Pingdom do this? They have more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. All Pingdom needs is the URL you wish to monitor, and they will take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix it before it affects you. You don't want to be caught out when someone accesses your site and tweets at you to tell you you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com slash cortex for a 14-day free trial. And don't forget to use the code cortex at checkout. You'll get 20% off, and you'll also be supporting this show. Thank you so much to Pingdom for their support of Cortex and Relay FM. Gray, I would like to do uh, one Ask Cortex today. Okay. But it's a, it's a long one. Oh. But it's a good one. Hmm. So you will have to bear with me for a moment because I think it is important to paint the picture of Guide Ghost on the Reddit. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to give you a little leeway here. Okay. But this better be good. Okay. So this is from Guide Ghost. And they say, I've been working on my side project for long enough that I feel that my primary job is just taking too much of my time. I often wake up, put in a solid Pomodoro or two of progress on my side project, but then just as I'm feeling great and like I'm feeling like I'm right on track with it, I have to completely derail my progress and go to work. My side project is not yet making money, and I feel like it's going to be hard to get it to that point without a stretch of a few months of uninterrupted full-time work. I lucked out in the career that I chose in the given city that I work in that there's a ton of demand for my services at all times. So I can kind of do my own teaching holiday schedule thing, work for a stretch, quit for a few months, then find a new job. The obvious consequence is having a bunch of one-year stints on your resume, which could make future employers wary, and it's difficult to explain to somebody why you've done this. I guess I might as well continue burning my career to the ground anyway, right? It's useless when I want to make it as a self-employed person later, right? The TLDR of this is how many times can one quit their job and get a new one before rendering themselves outwardly unemployable? This is super tricky. Hmm. So when I left my employment, I had no solid backup plan. I was not allowing myself to think, this isn't going to work. You're going to need to go get a job or you're going to need to go back, right? Like when I left, it was just like, that's it. I never left with the idea of like, put a few months in, get a new job. Um, And before that as well, people knew what I did outside uh, but I got on with my own job, like, it wasn't an issue. It's like, people knew what I was doing on the side, right, when I worked for the bank. They were just like, you do that thing. But I was already there, so it wasn't a problem. I just right. made sure I just got on with my job, right, so it wasn't an issue. But I can imagine this scenario being tough on an employer, coming in and saying, like, I do this thing on the outside. I've been spending some time away doing this thing. Like, how would you know if this person's going to bother sticking around? Especially if, like, you saw a CV that was, like, one year and then, like, a four-month gap, then another place for a year, then a four-month gap. You would look at it and probably think, this person's going to leave me after a year. Hmm. Like, I know if I was employing someone and saw that CV, I think that's how I would look at it. And and then once you're inside a company, it's fine, because as long as you're doing your work, most companies don't care what you do on the side. But trying to get employed by someone with a CV like that, I think might be a bit difficult. Hmm. That is is very 
tricky. It's also it's also interesting because so I basically did this when when I was trying to do anything other than teaching <laughs> uh, on the side. So I mean I've I've um, you know I, I worked as a teacher depending on how you want to count it like six or seven years, but I had a year gap essentially in the, in the middle ish end ish part of that. So I, I worked at, at one of my first schools for about four years. And then I, I quit teaching for a year and then came back to teaching at, at the end of that year. I think that's a little more palatable, right? Like yeah. I left to do a thing. The thing didn't work out. I'm now coming back. Like that one time that you do that, I think that's okay. But a, a string of that I think is difficult. Yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the problem. Uh, and also, just to be clear, I was not uh, forthcoming about the fact that I had left to go do a thing. Uh, I was real vague on what I've been doing for that year in between teaching. Why? That feels like a bad idea. Well, I mean, this is, this, to go to the, the, the questioners thing here, th- this goes to the point of, the riskiness of doing something like this is directly proportional to just how in demand is your job, right? Just how in demand is your particular set of skills. And my view on this, I mean, I know we sort of took different tacks, but no one at any of the schools that I worked at ever had any idea that I was doing anything on the side ever. And and that was very intentional. I thought no good can come of this. And I just kept my mouth shut about everything that I was doing on the side. People were like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, nothing. Like, as I said, I think I said this in the show in the past, like my mouth would have been shut, but I got the job in marketing because I proved that I was able to do something creative. Like, I had no choice. Yeah, you you were leveraging it. It was yeah. a different situation, right? You, you, were, you were leveraging it mm-hmm. to advance your career. Uh, that's different. Whereas... I, I think to most employers, like side projects... Un- unless like in your situation they can see how it would directly benefit them uh, they're not going to want to hear no, about this because it's it's splitting up your working brain yeah it's splitting up your working brain they're not going to like it and uh like guide ghost is doing as well if you're if you're really serious about it the only way to make real progress is to do it before you go to your actual job which again is what i did of like putting in a couple hours of work on the thing that i really cared about and then like oh i guess i'm off to work now (laughs) after i've given up the best part of my brain that's why i never understood the morning part it doesn't make the the, like working on this stuff in the mornings never made sense to me why you did it why guy ghost did it because you you have a hard stop time like the way that i did it I will just work until my body shut down. And that could be many hours. I don't know. Work for me. Yeah, this is, this is again, the difference between people and when their optimal work times are, right? Yep. And, and, and figuring that out. But, but so to get back to the main point, I think that I was able to be a bit more vague about precisely what I had been doing during that time. I mean, and I also like the story happened to work out very well, which was I was spending time with family in Hawaii. (laughs) I was like, guess what? People don't really question that, right? Because everybody's like, oh, man, if I could live in Hawaii for a long time, I totally would. Lucky you, dude. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, what were you doing then? Oh, spending time with family, like not working really hard to make sure I wasn't in this exact position now where I'm re-interviewing for a job. But oh. here I am, a failure. Right. <laughs> right. <But> exactly. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Like, but I failed in my endeavors. And so this is why we're having this conversation. Like, you don't put that on the resume. This <laughs> is not a good thing to do. But I, 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 again, I think people were not super inquisitive because my job was a physics teacher, right? And, and if there's if there's one thing that's great about being a physics teacher is that the job is in incredible demand. And so I, at any interview, I was essentially able to get a job as long as I did a pretty good job on the actual interview itself. So it was just like, it was just kind of a no-brainer. Unless you walk out and are completely vague and shady about wanting to work in a place right that's the only time that it would come back to bite you right yeah when you're being an idiot who doesn't know what's <laughs> happening yeah so this is like, oh, I, gotta, I gotta think about it oh, you moron past me but anyway um so so like i think th- this is my my feeling with guide ghost here is there's two there's two things here one of which is is we don't know the details about what the side project is, but I find it's a little concerning to me that whatever it is is not already earning money. Yeah, if it's not making money but you think it can after a few months of work, before making a decision like this, I would recommend that you burn the candle at both ends and make a little bit of money first. Because if you can't make a little bit of money when you're completely overworking yourself, unfortunately, I would be surprised that you would make any money if you put all your time into it. Like, what is this thing that you believe will take a couple of months and then you'll be golden? I, yeah. I, I don't know about that. Yeah, no, uh, no idea. I mean, it, it, it's possible that it's a thing. I mean, let's just say it's possible it's a thing like developing an app, for example, right? That you, you yeah. can't put it up on the store until until it is done. However, however, if it's if it's something like that, I, I really do think that the the business idea of a minimum viable product is something to seriously consider here. Yep. And it's so like, what is the smallest version of this thing that someone might give you some money for? And if if there's no if there's no version of that, ultimately, this to me feels like a hell of a gamble. And so when I left teaching the first time to attempt to uh, spin up one of my older projects, which which didn't work, I was already making a decent amount of money from the project before I quit teaching the first time. And the only question was, can I spin this up into a full-time living over the next many months? The answer to that turned out to be No. Uh, it was just very, very frustrating, perhaps one of the most frustrating periods in my life. But at the very least, I had an indication that there is some level of market demand for the thing that I'm doing. And the only question is, can I just triple this in size? Which I think is a very, very different question from, I have no income from this thing now. Can I make it into a full-time living in the space of, of several months? The other thing that is a, a little bit concerning is I, do, I don't know what the intended schedule here is, but if 
I mean, my my gut feeling here is it would be better to take a a longer break than to take a series of long-ish but inconvenient breaks to employers. Like, I, I don't know if it is practical to try to save up enough to, say, have a six-month break instead of doing two three-month breaks. Uh, I, I don't... I don't know if that is possible given the situation, but I think that to the main question about how many times can you do this before employers start to worry, the best way to mitigate that to me would would seem to be try to take a longer break and and then come back to a job that is in high demand instead of switching employers more frequently for shorter breaks. Again, it's a it's a little difficult to provide advice without specifics about what is the job because I could see some jobs where it wouldn't matter so much, but I'm I'm presuming that employers would like you say not like a a series of breaks after quitting jobs after 8 months to then not work 3 months or or something along those lines. Because one of the things if you're working in a team and the person who runs that team that manages you they don't care if you're loyal to the company, right? In most instances, if it's a big company you're going to work for, but they just don't want to have to go through this hiring process again in seven or eight months' time. Exactly. Speaking as someone going through the hiring process, of course you are. I would like to do it as little as possible. <laughs> so the idea of loyalty is sometimes just loyal to the team, right? And you're, mm-hmm. you're not going to leave the manager in the lurch after six or seven months because mm-hmm. you've you've really got to go out and work on your passion project for a while. Which leads me to ask the question of Guide Ghost: Wouldn't it be better to just try and do contract work rather than getting full time positions in companies? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Like if, if there is a version of this work which is contractable, that seems like the way better option as well. So like my advice would be pause the passion project, spin up a contracting business, find some contracting work, and then you will be ready to set your own schedule for as long as you want. That's what I think this person should do. I would say that, that my primary feeling still is try to make any amount of money even if it is small, with the side project before doing anything else. Oh, yeah. You've got to do that before you do anything else. You need to know that what you're doing is something other people want. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you believe it's a good idea. I'm sure it is a good idea, but it doesn't mean people want it or need it. Yeah, and there there's an interesting feeling, which is earning some money from a thing that you have done for the first time, even if it is a trivial amount of money, it's like, but that, but that simple barrier to get over that a person somewhere has handed you dollars for a thing, like that is a a bigger barrier than you might think it is, and it's also just such a great confirmation for you that yes, like somewhere in the market, a person has value for this because. As much as you you might want to just ask people, you can't really trust people's answers if you're just asking them. If you if you say, "What do you think about this thing?" People just want to be polite and nice, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea." Or or if you ask them, "Would you buy this thing?" People will say, "Sure, of course I'll buy that thing." But if you follow it up with immediately with, "Will you give me five dollars for this thing right now?" 
you'd be surprised. Like people will just change immediately. Like, oh no, I won't actually give you money for it now. I was just saying that to be nice. And, and so I think that's partly why it, it's very important to earn something from the side project first as, as a test and as a confirmation that you are on the right path. The absolute amount doesn't matter, but just getting something from someone who doesn't know you really does. But good luck to you. Good luck, Ghost Guide. Good luck. And I have to say, Mike, mm-hmm. that, that was a good question. Oh, you were happy to have that one. It was, it was, wasn't it? It was long. There was a lot to it, but I think it was worth it in its length. I, I think so as well. I was a little, a little worried when you were pitching this as a question. I thought I'm going to be, oh, here's Mike with a long thing. But someone someone was laying out their situation, and it was a good question. So it was worth it. So I, I, give, you, I give you thumbs up on that, Mike. Yes. I give you thumbs up on that. My collaborator guide ghost <laughs> on this one. If you have any Ask Cortexes, especially maybe if they're of this kind of nature, you know, I would hope that we might be able to help with some advice. I would suggest write it up. Tweet it at me with the hashtag AskCortex, and we'll see them. They go into a document. Or if you want to put them in the Reddit, you can do that. Tag me in it, and hopefully I'll see it. I, I don't know if tag me in it is correct vernacular for Reddit, but that's what I'm going to say anyway. <laughs> They're going to mention your username. There you go. Mention my username on the Reddit, and uh, <laughs> you get your, maybe you get your question on the show. We're helping people here, Gray. Oh, yeah? Yes. Yeah, it, maybe it's time for our second spinoff show. Caretex. Uh, we're helping people. Caretex. Isn't it? Uh, no. I do not approve of that name. Cortex. Caretex. No. Building an empire. <laughs> <laughs> an empire with limits, I think. <laughs> the limits are Mike can't name stuff. <laughs>